0: welcome to the surge strength podcast powered by ritter sports performance this podcast is dedicated to helping swim coaches and swimmers learn how to properly implement dry land and strength training programs that result in moving better reducing injuries and swimming faster let's join your host chris ritter
1: Welcome back to the Surge Strength Podcast, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Have a great episode set for you today. We're talking back half speed and reserve capacity. What coach doesn't want their swimmers to have greater back half speed? That's what the topic is going to be on our Inside the Surge Strength Academy segment. And remember, these are being pulled directly from our new Surge Strength Dryland certification. So in the certification, there are actually videos, and so there's other things that are gonna go along with it. So if it, I'm ever referencing that, just understand that's why, and you can get access to all of that if you enroll to become Surge Strength Dryland certified. You can check it out too with just in the academy. We have Dryland 101 courses for free which are a great option if you're ever interested in raising your dryland IQ and just learning as much as you can about dryland. I know that's a lot of coaches out there like, oh, I'm just struggling with it. Maybe you did it as a swimmer. Maybe you did a pretty decent dryland program as a swimmer. But now when you're a coach having to program, that can sometimes feel challenging. And we try to make it simple too of just, hey, here's the buckets you need to take care of and so that's the surge strength dryland certification. So one of the lessons from that today in the Inside Academy section is going to be that back half speed and reserve. And in that, a really good point I make at the end is that dryland is for any type of swimmer. Uh, I feel like there's uh incorrect thought out there that dryland is only really good for the sprinters and that the distance swimmers just need more water time. Well, in this lesson, we break down why actually dry land is equally important, if not even more beneficial for distance swimmers than sprinters because of the physiological nature of the race. So it may be a little bit surprising to you. So I hope you enjoy that segment. Remember, you can get more full access to all almost 200 lessons in the surge strength dryland certification. And then on our dryland talk segment, we're going to go back to our conversation with Sarah, one of our dryland certified coaches on our team here that works with actually teams and individual swimmers all over the world. She's in charge of a lot of their programming and does a great job getting great results. And so we continue our conversation with her. And if you you're looking for a refresh of your dryland program, maybe you don't even have a dryland program right now, now is a great time. Just go to our website, surge-strength.com, scroll down to the program section, just fill out a quick form, and then we can connect and talk to you more about what options of programming we have, whether it's for your team or yourself as an individual. So let's get into the rest of the episode.
0: Inside the Surge Strength Academy.
1: Back half speed and reserve capacity is what I'm going to be covering in this lesson. So let's face it, it's the holy grail of swimming, right? Back end speed. Every coach is trying to improve it in their swimmers, and probably every swimmer, maybe outside of Kayla Dekke, but everybody else could use better back end speed. It all is about how can you close that swimming race, right? And especially with swimming, most of the events are going to fall in that you know, minute to couple minutes range. And that relies on glycolysis and the oxidative system. So remember, glycolysis is creating waste products that are gonna start to clog it up and the oxidative system takes a while to kind of ramp up. So you have both those factors when it comes to swimming performance as well. And those really are gonna dictate what a swimmer does in their back half, what's their back half speed like. So we've talked about shifting the curve for the in-water training, and we can do that through a couple ways. One is improving the buffering or clearing out that it can do for glycolysis, and also helping the Oxave system be able to ramp up just a little bit quicker, and that's mainly done through in-water training. What we can do on dry land, though, is the second part, which is raise the ceiling of capacity, basically be able to be faster at a lower intensity For an athlete and I'll explain this a little bit more as we go through here so how I first want to just approach this idea is there is a a test that I did in college going through my degree and I'm sure a lot of other people have it's very kind of standard test it's the the Wingate anaerobic power test so basically what you do is when you're on a stationary bike the the power the resistance is up uh, very high I forget what the exact amount is but it's pretty tough and You are pedaling as hard as you can for thirty seconds. There's guys cheering you on. You know you need to try to just be all out, and you can see the the graph is going to go something like this. And you can see they're going to peak up. Let's say it's six hundred watts within thirty seconds. They're almost at less than fifty percent of what they peaked out just a few seconds in. So obviously, with the glycolysis system and the CP, the phosphagen system mainly fueling this. Yeah, there's going to be a very quick drop off. In power, because the intensity, they're trying to redline it right out of the gate. But you'll also see that basically, no matter where you got, so let's say the athlete was only at 400 watts, well, they're still going to end up at 50% or lower 30 seconds in because 400 is their top, whereas this athlete did over 600. So 300 is their 50%. Whatever rank in terms of the highest intensity you can get in power that's gonna then allow, okay, how much easy speed is there underneath it? So someone that can hit 600 watts has more easy speed, more capacity underneath than someone that's only at 400 watts, because both of them are gonna end up at around 50% capacity within 30 seconds of redlining it. And so therefore, that more powerful one's still going to win. I'm going to show you what this looks like in swimming, and you may say, "Well, Chris, you know we go a little bit easy for races." Well, for the 50 free, it's pretty much the closest thing we have to this comparison, and you know the best in the world are 20 seconds or less, depending if we're long course or short. So it's in the range of that power test on the bike. But you'll notice here, if you can see, you know, obviously they're diving in, so that's going to help them for that first 15 meters. Uh, but basically after that, when they're around that 15 meter mark, if you see the speed on all of these uh, Olympic champions over the past few years, they're almost dropping close to 50% by the time they're ending the race. So it's just a matter of who is slowing down the least in this 50 free who's going to win it. And we're still seeing that pattern that basically when you start going all out within 20 to 30 seconds, you're almost at 50% capacity. And so, again, if someone has a faster overall speed, if someone's able to be at 2.4, you know, just swimming straight, that drop off is going to end up being less than if your top speed is only two meters a second. So the 2.4 meters a second swimmer is going to always win that race in the 50 free over the swimmer that is two meters a second because there's just a greater capacity. There's greater for that. But I know the 50 is kind of an outlier, but so let's talk about any swimming distance in any distance, whatever half that distance is. So let's say if we're talking about the 200, if a swimmer is faster in the 100 and keeps improving their 100, that's going to actually help the 200 a little bit. Yes, yeah, not always a one to one ratio, but still having a faster top end speed allows for more easy speed. Let's break this down a little bit. So let's say you have a swimmer who has a goal time of 140 in the 200 free. So that would mean their 100 time needs to be 50, oh wait, no, it can't be 50 seconds. Why not? Because if their best time in the 100 free is 50 seconds, that means they're having to go all out for that. And so therefore, they can't just simply double that to get to 140. Their top end has to be faster because if the goal is 140, that means you're having to hold 50 seconds hundred. So 50 seconds in a 100 can't be your fastest time because you can't just double it. You're, you're, you're not able to ride out at that intensity for that long. So your 100 time actually needs to be faster. It needs to be closer to 47 or 45 so that you can back off. And let's say your best 100 time is a 45, Well, going five seconds slower, that's going to feel way easier. And yes, then you're going to be able to keep that up and hit that goal time eventually. So the more top end speed you have, the more capacity, the higher the ceiling of your performance, the easier speed that you're going to end up having. If a swimmer doesn't have to hit that red line as early in the race or as high of an intensity, it's going to allow their back half automatically to get better. You could just see this in any swimmer, right? If they, if you were in practice and you said, all right, swimmer A, you're going to sprint from the start for your 200, and swimmer B, you're going to go easy for the first 50 and then build it or, or go out from there. Of course, swimmer B is going to be better because they're not having to redline out of the gate. And so that top-end speed, the greater capacity, the higher level that an athlete gets, it allows them to have more of that as an easy speed. And the easy speed is what's gonna positively affect the back half of the race. Now, speaking of redlining, these are two cars that I've owned. The first one up top was uh, my first car. It probably had two gerbils that made up the engine, but I looked up the stats on these engines. So the first one, the Hyundai there, up top the little coupe, and it was a 1.5 liter engine, four cylinders, and it maxed out at 81 horsepower. Now, it's okay if you don't know all these numbers, just kind of follow with me here. The Jeep Grand Cherokee that I had, it was 4.7 liter engine, V8, and 265 miles an hour. Now, if both of them are sitting still, and we hit the pedal to the ground, let's go, who's gonna be the quickest to 60 miles an hour? Of course, it's not, it's not even a contest. I remember sometimes I'm kind of hoping and praying my car gets up to 60 miles an hour when I was in the first one up there. And another way to look at it, too, is if both of them are driving 40 miles an hour and needing to pass on the freeway or something, which car do you think is going to be able to go from 40 to 60 quicker? Of course, it's the Jeep. It's always the one with the bigger engine. Now. How you can kind of think about this analogy is the engine size, the cylinders, that's what the muscle size is or the hypertrophy. And yes, in swimming, we don't want to maximize hypertrophy completely, but we could think about the horsepower as kind of the neural strength component of it. So even if, let's kind of say, I'm not trying to max out hypertrophy, even if we cut the Jeep's engine in half, (laughs) okay, to get it down to four cylinders so it's it's even in terms of the hypertrophy size, so we're not just kind of gaining on hypertrophy. It's still almost 50% more powerful of an engine, 132 horsepower to 81. And yes, of course, you know, you can't just perfectly do that with the cylinders, but for the sake of the analogy here, I hope you're kind of seeing what I'm talking about And that if you give your athlete a bigger, stronger engine, it allows them to have easier speed at the start of the race, which automatically gives them a better back half. And easy speed in swimming is such a fine line, right? And in this study that we've um, kind of referenced previously in one of the lessons with uh, Ulbrich here, I'm going to zoom in so you can see this a little better. So at the end, we're seeing anywhere from swimmers go 1.26 meters a second, which is about 120 uh, seconds, 120 in 100, and then 1.36 meters a second. That's about 113 for 100. Okay. So not super fast, but still there's a 6 to 10 second range of where they're going to finish. I want to zero in on this because most races are going to be around that couple minute mark, right? So the gray line is about where that two and a half minutes is between where they started and where that five minute mark is. Look at just even the difference of the plots and the slopes here on these lines of how much the lactate is spiking and how fine of a line that is for that easy speed right it can be just a few seconds off one way or another for a swimmer now coaches i know that you've seen this where if a swimmer goes out just a few seconds too fast on that 25 or 50 man it's that piano coming on their back soon and it's just going to be a long ride to the finish as opposed to sometimes they can go out too slow and they weren't getting close enough and now there's not enough time to make up. For all that lost time that they gave up so it's such a fine line to walk that think about what just a little strength could do with that and so let's say we have two swimmers who are identical in terms of their technique and their capacity but one swimmer can only do five pull-ups that's her max the other swimmer can do 10 pull-ups that's her max now of course in you know the last uh, 25 of 100 you're not able to go 100% even though you're going all out you're you're just not going to be able to do that a minute into a race your 100% is gone by then but if you're trying to hang on for dear life you're probably operating around the 80% maybe even 90% so let's say even we cut them in half you're operating at 50% well person with only five pull-ups now they're at two or three and the person with 10 is still going to win they're at five pull-ups if we're operating at 50% And if we're operating at 80%, well, the five pull ups goes down to four and the 10 goes down to eight. Think about what that extra strength could do in terms of being able to hang on at the end of the race to keep that catch a little bit better, to keep that form a little bit more vertical, to hold water, keep the tension tight through the core as they're swimming. Because that line is so fine in terms of the easy swimming at the start and being able to ride that back end, a little strength can really go a long way. And remember, when we talked about strength training before and the muscle typer fibers, there are actually some really positive transitions to the strength training on the muscle where we can change the type 2X fibers that are the least helpful in endurance to closer to the type 2A fibers. And that's part of the reserve capacity that we're talking about here too. If we can raise the ability for a swimmer to have just a little bit more endurance, through the actual strength of doing a few more pull-ups or also changing the muscle fibers from type 2x which have almost zero endurance to at least a little bit endurance for the type 2a. This can have a tremendous impact on a swimmer's back half and this is what we're talking about when referring to a swimmer's reserve capacity. It's going to translate to easier speed at the front end because we've raised their overall capacity. If they can do 10 pull-ups as opposed to five asking each of those swimmers to do four, the one that can only do five, she's having to work a lot closer to her red line, and you don't want that early in the race, right? So if you have a swimmer that can do 10 pull-ups and you ask them to do four, that's no problem. It's going to be the same thing in the race, no matter what the distances are. And yes, there are going to be metabolic differences between the 50 and the mile, but still, if we increase the overall capacity that a swimmer has in strength and shifting the curve as much as we can in training, it's going to allow for better back half, which any swimmer and any coach is going to be a priest of. Dryland talk. Sarah, welcome back to Dryland Talk here on the podcast. Hey, Chris. So we got to know a little bit about you, kind of how you got into the sport of swimming later in life and then getting into school, having a lot of experience and and then we talked about the collaboration that you've had with some coaches in the past, but I wanted to kind of go back and I'm sure there's some more to the story of you getting into swimming and really finding your passion and helping coach people. You said you found that early on you wanted to coach. And so talk more about how that developed with dry land and, and swim training and you helping swimmers get better.
2: Yeah. So once I went to graduate school, I had an opportunity to, to actually teach swimming and weight training um, as a GA. And mm. Through that, um, you know, word of mouth, they needed somebody to start a dry land program at my local YMCA. So um, I actually took that on and it was it really opened my eyes to the club scene of swimming because um, I had just done university. And I realized that a lot of club teams don't even have a dry land program. And a lot of parents <laughs> are looking for their kids to do something because they keep getting injured with all the overuse injury in the shoulders and stuff like that. So um, I actually took that on and did a lot of work with parents and set that up. And, um, you know, that's when I realized that, hey, maybe I have a a future in dry land coaching. So (laughs) I did that. And then, you know, I was also working at a private sector. So um, a lot of the swimmers in the area from several different club teams in my area um, started coming to see me at my private Gym where I had more weight training equipment and mm. they started seeing the value and, in, in like, actually real weight training. So I did a combination of that and I just started going around to local swim clubs and coaching them on deck or, you know, beside the pool and dry land as well. So that really helped me grow experience in person so I could really see, you know, what a dry land program looks like. Coach Yeah.
1: That.
2: And then do you remember
1: I- in the first couple of people where you started to kind of connect the dots and maybe they were coming to that facility that you're training on? Do you remember what? they would say like, why, why is this working or how can they see it's helping their kid?
2: Yeah. So I remember there was a very large, like, um, like controversy over if we should do a dry land program or not. So, <laughs> so like half of some parents were like, we need dry land so bad, like come do anything. And the other half was like, my kid's not getting hurt in dry land. And you know, you're like,
1: you know, they won't. That's why they need to come to me.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, half of them, I guess, had like a bad experience with just mm. the swim coach trying to do dry land, yeah. but the swim coach really had no idea like where to even start. Yeah. So it kind of gave me a way to, to kind of update everybody on what dry land actually is. So, you know, by the end of the season, all the parents were like loving it because their kids were number one, having more fun doing a dry land program than just swimming a lot of yardage. And I was actually able to come in and talk about, um, you know, intentional training in the pool as well.
1: Mm, no, that's really cool. And again, you can't fault the parents, right? Like if they had a bad experience and that's all they know, right? Is all they know is just a cobbled together, poorly constructed dry land program. I could see why they could think, Hey, why do we want to go get injured again? Because that's the, that's our number one goal, right? Not to injure <laughs> people. So not even being able to experience that. I'm sure that probably changed some minds, them seeing some of the success the other uh, kids were having on the team.
2: Yeah, definitely. So that definitely is what happened. Like the kids who were really into it got a lot better. Mm. And then um, it wasn't mandatory at first for people to even go to my dry land program. Um, (laughs) So so the the handful of kids that went like loved it. And they talked about how amazing it was. They dropped a whole bunch of time. I started coming to their meets to like support them.
1: Oh, that's cool.
2: Yeah. Then all of a sudden I had like a line of parents being like, (laughs) my kid has to go to dry land. And so then, like, you know, by the end of the season, everybody on the team I mean, I was only supposed to work with like the middle school, high school group, and I had kids as young as four and their parents being like, put them in dry land. I'm like, they haven't even started swimming yet. <laughs> like, we want you in dry, in dry land with Coach Sarah. And I was like, okay. So, you know, I, I really got to see them um, develop and I got to see kind of like the change in the culture of the, the whole club kind of shift.
1: That's really cool. That's going to make you feel really good that you had that success early on with connecting those dots, right? Because I think back on, on like my uh, journey into strength and conditioning, I didn't necessarily have a lot of success with swimming specifically mm-hmm. the first few years, right? Like just general population, but that's really cool that right off the bat, you had a lot of success in swimming specifically and could see how powerful dryland could be when implemented the right way.
2: Yeah, I did a lot of experiences in, you know, the fitness field, exercise science field. And, you know, every time a dry land situation came up, it just seemed to come to me. So that's what I realized. (laughs) That's what I should be doing.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. And then how did you make your way to becoming a part of Ritter? What, What went into that thought process of, you know, you're training people in person and now we just train people online. That's a big jump for some people to make.
2: Yeah. So I, I honestly never thought I would coach online, but, uh, you made it really easy for me to, um, learn, but, um, yeah, so I found you through the podcast actually. And I just remember wanting to learn more about swimming because I was doing all this dry land stuff. And I was like, you know, I just need to learn more about swimming. And I, you popped up and I realized like, you have so much information on your website and through different like articles and different, different stuff, podcasts, everything. And, Um, So I was like, man, this guy is like really has a lot of opportunity here. So I, I applied online and, um, you know, started working with you guys a year and a half ago and it just really helped me, you know, living in a small area to be able to work with swimmers all over the world. um, It really helped me like be able to expand past my, my club team that I was Mm -hmm. working with primarily. And um, it allowed me to, you know, I started a family and allowed me to work from home and, and really get some different experiences and have access to like the elite dryland team and mm. resources.
1: Yeah, and now we got the certification going. So, we're hoping we're going to spread that even more. But you know, how does that feel for you to kind of, like you said, you know, you're starting a family, you're able to live where you want, but you can still impact people outside of, you know, the 15, 20 miles radius around where you are. Yeah,
2: I was full on ready to move out of my small town because I, <laughs> I felt like I kind of hit the ceiling, you know, in the area that I was in. People just, you know, they're not as forward thinking with strength and conditioning in general. So, you know, when Ritter came along, it allowed me to be by family and, um, you know, still be able to train some really awesome people and have some really amazing interactions with people online.
1: Yeah, no, that's really cool. Yeah, and speaking of cool interactions, I think some people don't even realize that we do train a lot of master swimmers, older swimmers, and then also um, triathletes as well. And you have some cool stories of some customers, clients you've been working with of late.
2: Yeah, so one of my clients, um, she was like really intimidated by weight training. And when she signed up for Ritter, she was just like, what did I sign up for? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. You signed up to work with this crazy girl, I guess. <laughs> so, so, you know, when she first started, like she was afraid to even do like a squat. She was afraid. So she hadn't go- done
1: anything. She had, she had not done any kind of strength conditioning.
2: Yeah. She had done some dry land work, like um, through like just gym settings, and stuff like that. Gotcha. And, um, she, she had an injury. So she tore Mm. her meniscus and that really led her to want to find like professional help. So, so, um, when she came in, she's just like, I just want you to know, I'm not going to lift anything heavy. I'm not even going to my weight room. And so we, (laughs) we had some phone calls and I was like, okay, just, just go in with your app and here's your list. Just try it one time. So she went in and she was like, you know, I'm sore, but that wasn't that bad. So I was like, okay, are you going to go back and try it again? And she was like, yeah, I'll try it again. so we made a deal. I would give her like only what she was comfortable with for the first like Mm. month and a half. And then, um, by the end of that month and a half, she was wanting to be challenged a little bit more. So now she's able, her knee's completely healed and she is able to jump and she doesn't really run because she doesn't like to run, but she can run if she wants to. So she's very happy with her experience.
1: I think that's so cool. Sarah, like, it continually goes back to we're meeting the people where they're at, right? Whether it's a coach and a team and he's trying to, you know, finish off the, the puzzle there or like someone like that who has very little, if any, dry land experience is all actually afraid of going into the weight room because they think they're just going to automatically get hurt. But for us to be able to meet them where they're at. And then show them, wow, hey, that wasn't that bad. And adrenaline doesn't have to be something where at the end of the session, you're, you know, in a puddle of your own sweat and you can't move. And then therefore, you can't even do a swim workout. Like, it doesn't have to be that way to get better. And actually, it shouldn't be that way.
2: Absolutely. And I think the difference between working with Ritter and just following a program is that we kind of coach you through. Like, a lot mm. of people know how to follow a program. Yeah. But what they, what they really want is a coach to help them and actually coach them through it.
1: No, that's really cool. Any other experiences you got to share before we sign off?
2: Um, you know, just a little bit, shout out to my international client, Chantal. <laughs> she is so impressive to me. She does um, swimming, running, um well, she doesn't run like competitively, but she does swimming and cyclocross and she's really into golf.
1: Cyclocross. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and I, I really still don't understand cyclocross, completely, <laughs> but it's very intense when you look it up on YouTube. So, um, yeah, she does a lot of biking and swimming and, um, you know, we've just had a really cool experience. She lives international. So That's awesome. it's really, it's really cool to work with people who aren't in the U S cause it just gives you such a bigger perspective of training around the world. And, you know, she manages to to fit Dryland in and we tailor it towards, you know, all of her sports year round. And it's really cool to watch her journey unfold too. So that's
0: yeah, awesome. Guess,
1: yeah. Yeah, and we're actually getting of late like more people international. So that's really cool that, you know, you've you've has been with us for a while now. So that's awesome that again, you're able to balance as her dryland coach, okay, you're doing this sport, when's your next cyclocross meet? Okay, you want to swim, you wanna, you know, golf. Like, all right, how do we order all this and she doesn't have to worry about it. She just to tell you what she's doing and then you can kind of figure that out and get the plan and, and work with her on it. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Sarah, thanks for coming on the podcast. We'll have to come have you come back on again for another Dryland Talk.
2: I would love that.
0: Have you joined the Surge Strength Academy yet? It's now free to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy and raise your Dryland IQ. Visit surge-strength.com to learn more and enroll today. That's surge-strength.com to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy. The goal of Surge Strength is simple. Build better athletes to generate faster swimmers.